Have you ever changed your perspective on a theological matter? I know that I have, and Bobby has as well. Well, we're going to discuss three areas of theological change that Bobby has had over the years. Hello, Thinking Christians. Welcome to The Unapologetic Show, where we defend truth without compromise with Dr. Bobby Conway, the one-minute apologist. I'm your host, Tim Hall. I want to quickly remind you that if you are interested in listening to this show again, or you want to um, share it with somebody else, we would love for you to do that. You can do that over at our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash one-minute-apologist. Like this video, share it with your friends, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can also listen to this show as an audio-only podcast on your favorite podcast players. I will remind you that as we are halfway through the year here. This is a listener-supported show. So if you enjoy this content, if you are edified by uh, the conversations that Bobby and I have around some of these topics, we would love for you to join our financial support team. And you can do that at oneminuteapologist.com and then click on donate. Well, Bobby, Christians should be open-minded and we should be able to be persuaded by the evidence. That's one of the things that apologetics does. And I know that, man, you have, with your dual PhD, looked at a ton of different pieces of evidence, but you've also shifted your view on uh, you know a few key issues over the years, and we're going to discuss some of those and uh, you know kind of grill you a little bit on that. That sounds so, great. Uh, the first one that you've shifted at one point, you were a Calvinist. Now I know before you leave me a comment, right? <laughs> every time someone describes Calvinism, someone's like, "That's not what a Calvinist is." Okay, so we're going to get Bobby to describe what he means by Calvinist and some of the views that he held, and if it's not the ones. That you share, you you can let us know in the comments. That's that's fine. But uh, I think every time I've mentioned the word Calvinism, yeah. someone will say, "Nope, that's not actually Calvinism." Yeah. Okay, that, that's fine. Let us know in the comments yeah. where we messed up. Bobby, explain yeah. uh, the view that you held uh, the Calvinism that you affirmed at one point. Yeah, I mean, if somebody says that you know I'm not describing Calvinism accurately, uh, you know, uh, then I would really beg to differ on that. <laughs> okay. uh, as one who has read both volumes of Calvin's Institutes, right, right. Uh, you know, I'm familiar with it. I was actually yeah. discipled into Calvinistic theology mm. as an early believer uh, by a pastor who was a mentor in my yeah. life. So, uh, you know, familiar with, uh, you know, Pink, uh, you know, cut my teeth on MacArthur in Sproul, yep. uh, you know, in Edwards, uh, Spurgeon. Right. So a five-point Calvinist, uh, I, I was. Yeah. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, a five-point Calvinist will ascribe to the what is known as the tulip. Now, tulip. that was yep. put together by, uh, you know, people who were close associates with John Calvin after he passed away. Mm-hmm. Calvin was a Swiss uh, reformer. He's really a Frenchman, but he lived in Geneva. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there in Geneva, uh, he did a lot of work and had a tremendous impact and uh, was incredible at, uh, you know, being a theologian. Yeah. Nobody would deny him that. Yeah. Uh, and I would say as it relates to Calvin and his followers, what ended up happening is they started looking at his theology and they tried to put it in a systematic uh, approach that would make, uh, you know, sense with, you know, an acrostic called TULIP, which yeah. stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, uh, or perseverance of the saints, yep. or as R.C. Sproul termed it, preservation of the saints. Right, right. And so I held fast to that for uh, quite some time. Uh, much more of my Christian life was I a Calvinist yep. than 
uh, non-Calvinists. I started to feel a little bit fuzzy about it uh, as I went along, and I ended up uh, questioning uh, the limited atonement aspect Mm -hmm. and basically was a four-point Calvinist. Okay. So you have some that would describe themselves as a four-point Calvinist, and instead of believing in limited atonement, they would believe in unlimited atonement. Mm -hmm. That is to say that Christ's death was efficacious for all, but only... um, you know, or Christ's death atoned for the sins of all, but it only becomes efficacious for those who believe. Yeah. Uh, then you would have the hyper Calvinists, okay. and the hyper Calvinists is like a five plus Calvinist who they come to the point where God is just so unbelievably sovereign that they just shut down on the evangelism project mm-hmm. altogether, yeah. knowing that God's going to save some. Yeah. I've walked away from the four point Calvinism, the five point Calvinism, and the hyper Calvinist <laughs> position. Well, that's good. So, what were some of the things that started you started to kind of put some cracks in your Calvinism. What were some of the things that you learned that you were like, oh, I'm not sure I can hold on to this anymore? A common statement that a Calvinist will talk about is God's general call that goes out. Okay. And as you go out and present the gospel, you share it, and everybody that hears it, God's general call lands on them, so to speak. Um, and so you could say, hey, with integrity, whosoever will uh, can believe and you know be forgiven of their sins. The problem is I didn't feel like it was genuine. Mm. If somebody genuinely can't respond, how can they truly have the opportunity to believe? Yeah. And that is based on uh, total depravity. And the uh, a Calvinist will often use the illustration of somebody who's down at the bottom of the sea after drowning versus the person who uh, is thrown a life vest. The person who's thrown a life vest and reaches out by faith to the person who throws a life vest, that would look more Arminian. But the per- mm. but they say, you know what it looks like total depravity is you're at the bottom of the sea, you're dead. God jumps in and the person of Jesus goes down, breathes life into you. So you're regenerated first mm. before you can exercise faith. Yeah. So in other words, sharing the gospel with people that weren't predetermined to be saved is futile because they have to be regenerated to place faith in God. And that started uh, me down a little bit of a slippery slope. So what I ended up doing is uh, thinking more about that. And I came to realize something about Calvinists, and I respect them for this. They have a high desire to lift up the glory of God and the sovereignty Mm. of God. Yeah. But I came to believe that they've overdefined the term sovereignty of God. Okay. And it looks a lot like fatalism or namely Allahism. Yeah. And so, like, what would the Muslims say? Well, Allah just does what Allah does. Right. And a Calvinist is going to get in a position of having to say the same thing. Well, God is good. God can just do what he wants. Who are you, oh man, to question God? Which, by the way, I take Romans 9 as a corporate passage when it comes to Jacob and Esau versus an individual. I think that's the better way to interpret it. Yeah. But all that to say, um, I started thinking about that and I'm going, hey, uh, it's great that we want to recognize that God is sovereign. He is. But if we overdefine sovereignty to be fatalism um, and right. to uh, eliminate people's opportunity to respond to God, then that's a problem. One of the other things that I struggled with is a, a lot of caricatures mm-hmm. that were used of people that weren't Calvinists. Like, the oh, so you think that you contributed your salvation because you have faith? I'm like, nobody no. thinks that. Right. Uh, they're not thinking that they're contributing anything. They're, they know yeah. that faith is a gift that God gives. Right. Uh, they know that God is the one who graciously draws. Mm. So I read a book called Good God by 
David Baggett. Yep. And in this particular book, it was really helpful for me. Baggett's a philosopher, and he started talking about Calvinism, him and his co-author, Jerry Walls. And he laid out this construction, basically, if A, then B. And he said, well, let's say that if A implies I ought to believe and B implies I can't believe, then how am I morally culpable? Right. And so that's what we were saying as Calvinists. You ought to believe, you ought to believe, but the person can't believe unless they're first regenerated. Right. So what you've got then, it seems unjust, is you have a God who will sentence people to hell forever for not being regenerated, right? Uh, for not believing, right. right? But they can't believe unless they're regenerated. So if A implies I ought to believe and B implies I can't believe, then it begs the question, how am I truly morally responsible? Mm. And so I shifted and I would look at it like this. A implies I ought to believe, but B implies then I can believe. Right. And then C, if I don't believe, leads to the conclusion that I am responsible. Okay. So uh, where where do you now fall, right? Where are you, are you go more on the Arminianist <laughs> side? Do you go more on the Molinist side? Where do you think, how would you describe your, you know, kind of soteriology in that sense? I would describe myself not as a Calvinist, but as a Confusionist. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I believe in the sovereignty of God and I believe in the human responsibility of individuals. I don't know that I have a system. Mm. Uh, I, I do find Molinism very attractive yeah. uh, for sure. I think it's more thoughtful. I, 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 I'm drawn to some of the thinking that I see there. Uh, I, I don't think that you can lose your salvation, okay. uh, though I've heard stories of people that are apostates, and when they describe their experience of being a Christian in love with God, seeking the Lord, praying, mm. that can be confusing. Yeah, uh, if I'm just listening and I'm like, I'm, I'm like, man, uh, you know, because some people who are apostates, you think, well, they obviously just never believed. Yeah, but I've listened to some of the stories of people uh, that are apostates. And they will talk about Jesus in a way that you go, wow, that uh, sounds like, uh, you know, a legitimate kind of a way that yeah. a Christian would talk. Uh, but I'm uncomfortable uh, with saying you could lose your salvation. Uh, at the same token, I uh, believe that uh, an apostate is one who appears saved and walks away. But there have been testimonies that mm-hmm. I've heard that are powerful, uh, but at the same token, I think that salvation is all by God's grace, but we are responsible to place faith in him. Right, amen. Well, that salvation being all by God's grace leads us to our, our next um, theological point that you have changed on, uh, and that's exclusivism. So tell us a little bit about what you mean, and again, they're a little bit related maybe with Calvinism, but tell me what you mean by how you the view that you held of exclusivism. Well, those who uh, don't believe in Jesus, or even in particular, the fate of those who've never heard. Mm-hmm. So take the 1040 window, the most unreached people group in the world. Yeah, If they never heard the gospel, there is a version called heart exclusivism that would say that those people have died and gone to hell. Mm. And when I was in Bible college, that was what I was taught. It didn't sit well with me emotionally, mm. but I didn't know what to do with a verse like Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yeah, And so I would consider that particular view and think about it. And it was while I was doing world travels, 
that it really disturbed me because mm-hmm. it's different. When you're in the Bible Belt, you can right. sit on your heart exclusivism all day long, but go interact in the 1040 window and sit there and go, okay, so has every person born into this culture just been born to die to go to hell mm-hmm. because they've never heard the information piece of the gospel? Right. And so that that's, that's a little bit difficult to swallow. So uh, what... That traveling around, talking to other people. So now, where do you where do you fit? How do you reconcile that? Because what you're, I don't think what you're saying, and you've mentioned it before, is that Jesus is still the only way to heaven. But how does that then make provision? What what's the answer for those people that maybe haven't heard verbally of the gospel? So you have some people they'll t- they'll make the move. They'll be universalists, and they'll just right. basically say everybody's going to end up in heaven. Uh, You'll have inclusivists who will say that there are people that are outside the Christian faith that can be included regardless of their faith. And C.S. Lewis is known to be, Mm. was known to be an inclusivist. Uh, Then you'll have the hard exclusivists who say, no, if you don't hear the information piece of Jesus and place your faith in uh, Christ, then you're lost. Um, I'm what you would refer to as a soft inclusive, mm. a soft exclusivist, excuse mm. me. A soft exclusivist uh, would recognize that Jesus is still the only way okay. that you are getting to heaven, but you might not be aware of it. So mm. suppose somebody lives in a 1040 window and they walked outside and I'm going to contest, contend that people are held accountable for the information that they do have. Right. And so let's say somebody says, God, I don't know who you are, but I believe you've created this universe. Mm-hmm. That's Psalm 19, that's Romans 1, that's affirming, uh, you know, natural revelation. Yeah. And I also believe that you're good, God, and I've sinned against you. Mm. Will you forgive me? Uh, that's Romans 2, that God has written his law yeah. on our hearts. If somebody was to do that, I don't see why God couldn't choose uh, to save that person right. still because of what Jesus did, right? Like people under the old covenant were saved because of what Jesus would do, even though they weren't aware of, you know, what was going to happen on the cross, yet they placed their faith in him. Uh, I think that God would still be uh, just and could make provision through the atonement for somebody in a situation like that. Now, some people want to to say, well, once Christ died and said to tell us die, it is finished, then people uh, weren't able to get saved apart from Mm. placing their faith in the known Jesus Christ. But I want to say, okay, so suppose somebody's uh, living in uh, Thessalonica, right? And they're there uh, and they have, they're going to die on the the same day as Jesus, but they're going to die at night. Jesus dies at three in the afternoon. And suppose at night uh, they say, God, I believe that you're good. I believe I've sinned. I believe that you're the creator. Well, because they don't have that information piece and they die at nine at night, mm. but had they had they said that at 2 p.m., <laughs> right, right. an hour before Jesus died at 3 p.m., right. that person could have been saved under the way that we normally would describe God working salvation for yep. those in uh, holding people accountable according to the knowledge you do have. But now because Jesus said it is finished simply because of a geographical uh, outreach, this person's host. Yeah. And I just started thinking, I just, 
I don't think that would be the case. Right, right. No, and I think that that's a really good point to draw out. I mean, you, you referenced Romans 1 and 2, and I think those two uh, lend support to that, you know, kind of soft, inclusivist view where somebody could recognize their sins, they could recognize the goodness of God, and they could ask for salvation. And the, the way that God, you know, decides to provide that information for them, I think could be, you know, of several different uh, avenues. And I think that we see that, uh, you know, even in the Muslim community with dreams and God interacting with people through dreams and uh, through visions and, and whatnot to be able to uh, present that information. So, okay. Yeah, absolutely. People do get saved in different types of ways. The last thing I'd say about that, Tim, yeah. is this. I think it's important for me to say, because some people will object to go, yeah, but then why go share the gospel? Right. Well, that's just looking at the gospel as something that it gets people out of hell and brings people into heaven. Yeah. Uh, why wouldn't we take the gospel? Uh, why wouldn't we take the word? Jesus talked about us being salt and light. Like we want people to have the word of God so that they could be informed so that they could transform culture. Yeah. We don't want them just to have a limited knowledge of God. And I trust, as William Lane Craig has said before, that the same people who would reply to uh, you know, general revelation to creation and conscience. If they were given the opportunity to hear about Christ, they too yeah. would recognize that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Amen. All right. So the third view that you have uh, shifted your theological position on, and this is kind of maybe a little bit more fresh, right? So we talked uh, a few weeks ago in an episode about your training at Dallas Theological Seminary and being uh, pre-trib, and you've since on some level shifted to kind of a post-trib. So maybe describe the pre-trib that you affirmed while you were at Dallas and kind of maybe up to this point where you've transitioned a little bit. Yeah, actually, my Bible college, I, I learned pre-trib at Dallas Seminary. I learned pre-trib. And then in my first doctorate in apologetics under Norman Geisler, uh, he was certainly a pre-trib. So the tribulation is the idea that there'll be a future tribulation. Mm. And pre-trib says that the church will be raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. Then there's a mid-trib that says, no, you'll be raptured in the middle of it. Then there's a pre-wrath that says, no, right before God's final outpouring of his wrath, uh, people will be raptured. Uh, and then there is a post-trib. And the post-trib person would say that that the rapture and the second coming are one and the same mm. event. When Jesus comes, the church is go, goes up to meet him and then comes down and then Christ will set up as a millennial kingdom. Okay. And so uh, on that pre-trib view that you held before, uh, what you're talking about is that people are going to be raptured, right? So this yeah. is, you know, um, what was what was the book series? that? Oh, I, the Left Behind the by Left Hal Behind Lindsay. Series. So, so it's similar, kind of connected with that Left Behind. So at one point, you, again, the view that you used to hold was that, uh, you know, the church would be raptured and it'd be, you know, just vacant clothes all over the place and cars crashing because people were raptured up. And I, I, again, I don't know a lot about the end times. So describe what that view was. I, um, <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, that would be the view that the church is raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. Okay. Um, and I, I, I wasn't like some bulldogmatic guy on that. Uh, right. It did seem a little bit odd to me. Um, you know, I was a Christian for two years before I even heard about the rapture. And when I learned about it, I thought, man, that just seems so bizarre. But wanting to be faithful as a Christian, and, you know, I was told by, you know, mentors, this is what the Bible teaches. Right. So, okay, great. Um, I would say that there's been a lot of sensationalism okay. around the book of Revelation, but not all, to be fair to people. Uh, Pre-tribbers, not all, are sensationalists. I think about uh, you know my co-host uh, Brian Broderson on Pastor's Perspective, and uh, you know what a what a thoughtful, yeah. uh, godly pastor mentor he is in my life. And so I would not, in the least, 
describe him as a sensationalist, yeah. nor would I a lot of uh, pre-tribulation uh, viewpoints that yeah. people will take. I just don't necessarily see it. A lot of stuff looks like an argument from silence. So mm. in John chapter four, one, he's invited to come up into the throne room. And some people will say, oh, cause the church is not mentioned uh, until chapter 22 again. Uh, and uh, then there's you know, no need to think that the church is on earth, but that seems like an argument from silence because mm. the word saints is used over and over again. Uh, when Jesus talked about protecting us from the hour of trial, I mean, Jesus also prayed, you know, I, I, I don't pray to take them out of the world, but you protect them while they're in the world. So I think that we're, they're protected from what? The wrath of God mm. uh, from it being poured out on them directly, but that doesn't mean they're not affected by the wrath of God. Yeah, uh, You know, so I'm open to seeing uh, where my continued studies go, but it's just simpler for me to, to look at the passages and just see this as one in the same event. Not only that, um, in church history, Tim, uh, before the 19th century, this wasn't even a viewpoint. With John Nelson Darby, uh, you know, uh, uh, this became something that uh, really came on the scenes. He was part of the Plymouth Brethren, and it worked, right? Like people mass marketed it. It worked for sensationalism. Uh, Christians liked it because they got the thought of, you know, I don't have to live here. I can I can be, you know, hijacked out of here. Right, right. Uh, I don't want to be in the tribulation era. Uh, yet my fear really came down to this. What if, what if um, the pre-trib is wrong? Mm. Well, then we haven't prepared people properly for the tribulation. Yeah. And so I thought, look, if I lean toward a post-trib and prepare people for a tribulation and I'm wrong and the pre-trib is right, well, great. What's the worst that happened? Uh, I was trying to be faithful to scripture, number one. And number two, I just help people to have a mindset of preparation. If the pre-trib is wrong and I'm right, well, there's going to be a lot of disillusioned Christians wondering, what the heck am I doing here? And the right. question will be, are they prepared for the tribulation? Right. Well, I think, again, I think it's an excellent point um, that we should be prepared, that even in that sense, even if, even if the pre-trib is correct, like you just said, man, we want to be prepared. So what are some of those things, um, if you're correct, that would happen in that tribulation? What would, what would be some of the things that the book of Revelation kind of lays out as what that tribulation will look like here? I mean, Christians are going to be martyred. Mm. Uh, that's going to be brutal. Yeah. Uh, and so in a tribulation period, you're going to have Christians who are suffering. Uh, they're going to be, uh, you know, alienated. Uh, they're not going to be able to buy and sell if they don't take, you know, the mark of the beast, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of problems here uh, that are going to emerge, but they're also going to be a part of something really beautiful. There's going to be lots of people getting saved. Uh, there's going to be martyrs, crowns are going to be passed out. So uh, I don't think that we need to look at the tribulation um, is something that we can't endure. God can see us through it. I mean, we know he can see us through it because even on a pre-trip view, there's people that are getting saved in the tribulation and he's going to see them through the difficult time. Right. And uh, these people are going to be 
heroes in heaven. I mean, yeah. obviously the Lord's the great hero, but mm. you know what I mean? I mean, these people uh, lay down their life for the gospel, but people that are going to do that are going to have to be really gritty. They're going to have to be prepared. They're not going to, ha- they're going to have to not be trying to fit in and they're going to yeah. have to be people that are willing to carry their cross and stand up for Jesus. And uh, my fear is some people could just think, ah, oh, it's no big deal. Jesus is going to come. I'm going to be out of here. And that might just weaken them. Mm. Uh, others would say, well, that's not supposed to. It's supposed to help them to be, stay ready. Right. Um, you know, maybe some would worry that, well, if you're a post-trip person, how are you motivated to stay ready? Yeah. Well, I'm not motivated to live for Jesus because he's coming again. I'm motivated to live yeah. for Jesus because he already came, right. died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave. And I trust because he came the first time he's coming again. And I want to be faithful to him, whether he raptures me out of here before the tribulation or at the end of it. Right. No, amen. Um, well, I, I just wanted to say to our audience, man, I think, you know, Bobby in this episode is a great example of, uh, you know, remaining open-minded to different perspectives. Uh, even though, again, like you talked about with Calvinism, where for most of your, you know, you know, Christian life, you were taught one perspective, but then you were open. You're, you know, you're reading, um, you know, really difficult books that were challenging your views. You weren't afraid to pick up something that was going to be able to uh, disagree with what you were saying. And then you came out on the other side, kind of following the evidence on several of these different areas. And I think it's just a picture of what we should be doing as Christians and particularly apologists and thinking Christians. We should be continuing to follow that biblical evidence and look at the the different contexts and, you know, read the different experts. So say a word to us here in about 10 or 15 seconds about being open-minded. Well, here's the deal, Tim. Uh, I think that any thinking Christian is going to have some opinions change from time to time. Yeah. Unless they were handed the perfect way to see things mm. when they first committed to their doctrines. Right. But who gets that luxury? I mean, so it would just assume that if you've never changed your opinions on anything, well, were you just so fortunate mm. that every view you locked down on, you just got it right the first time? <laughs> well, I don't think that's the case. I think that we're, you know, people in process. Right, right. Well, I have a video on my channel dealing with deconstruction where I lay out uh, three areas that I've changed my view on as well. I'll leave that in the description if you want to check that out. And with that, we will meet you next time on The Unapologetic Show. You've been listening to Unapologetic with Dr. Bobby Conway, the one-minute apologist. I am your host, Tim Hall. Be sure to listen to Bobby on Pastor's Perspective Monday through Thursday, as well as like, share, and subscribe to the One Minute Apologist YouTube channel, where we have over 1,000 videos. We would also like to remind you that this is a listener-supported program. We would greatly appreciate your support in any amount so we could continue to provide this ministry. If you would like to be a part of our team in any capacity, please visit our website at oneminuteapologist.com. And while you're there, check out all of Bobby's books, courses, and even invite him to speak at your church or event. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic, where we defend truth without compromise.